When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, Here with Richard Farley. Richard, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You sound really good, though. There was a lot of fear that you were going to come here and not sound good because you've been dealing with illness for a week. You sound like regular Jamie Goldberg. Yeah, I, I, I like to think that I, I got the flu in Seattle because that just sounds funny, but I think I was getting it a little bit before, um, <laughs> getting a little sick before then, but um, pretending that uh, Seattle got me ill seems, wow. uh, seems like a you were all in go. on this Portland job, aren't you? <laughs> all in. All in, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm glad that you're feeling well enough to come and do the podcast today because we have a ton to talk about on the timber side, positive stuff, continuously positive stuff for the last three months. And then on the thorn side, I don't want to say negative stuff, but certainly a lot of questions as they approach the last end of their season. Yeah, nine games left. I think there's going to be a lot of questions for Thorns. And uh, luckily, we have some listener questions this week, too, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Sometimes we don't have quite as many Thorns questions. I think we'll have a lot to hit with them later in the show. Yeah. Um, but on the positive side first, I, I think we're going to talk about the Timber Sounders because uh, that was obviously um, the high moment of the of the weekend. Uh, yeah. And I think we have to start with, as we always do, predictions. Yes. And note how this game did not play <laughs> out like you, either you or I saw no. it. Now, you did predict a one-goal Portland win, but you predicted one to nothing. Just as the history of this rivalry shows, though, there were lots of goals in this one. Some goals that probably shouldn't happen if either team could just do some basic marking on set pieces. But as everybody listening to this podcast probably knows, 3-2 to two was the final. Laris Maviala with his first brace in his whole entire professional career, going back to France and Turkey too. And then um, Samuel Armenteros with the goal, the sandwich goal in there. So you had the right result, just not quite the right spirit of the game. Whereas me, I had an Alvis Powell goal, so I had the wrong defender. <laughs> but also, I don't even think Alvis took a meaningful shot no, in this I don't game. Think so. It's your turn for the points, Jamie. Yeah, I, I was really hopeful there for a little while after the first half that I that I nailed it. Uh, that I was going to end up, and then Mobiola gets that first goal, and I was like, "Ah, oh, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be one nothing." And then, then it got a little wild. So uh, you're, you're <laughs> right; it didn't didn't quite get uh, the feeling of the game. Um, but I did get the win, and I, I I don't think that was an easy prediction given that they never had a MLS win Ooh, in Seattle. That's that's your hot take right there that it wasn't easy to see <laughs> the Timbers who haven't lost in eleven games beating one of the worst teams in the league. Well, I'm going to give myself. Uh, um, ten points for the ten oh game MLS oh MLS and Bean streak. <laughs> okay, all right. I see how it is now. Um, 
I'll, I'll, ten points. <laughs> I would say to myself, if she gives herself more than two points, I'm gonna riot. I, I think I think overall I give more points just generally than you. You think like in the like one, twos, threes. I think it's in like the ten, twenties, thirties, forties. Okay, um, that's fair. And then plus with me doing these weird low probability side bets, a lot of times I'm giving points in weeks where neither of us are that close. Yeah. So, so I, I think for you, you'll get like. Um, I think I think I have to. I mean, you you really didn't get it. You didn't get a shot and goal. I'll give you point five points for getting a defender. Having the defender idea in there. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> so where do we start with this one? I think one of the places we can start is just actually how the Timbers set up. They stayed with a diamond midfield, the same diamond midfield we last saw in the Open Cup game against Los Angeles. Before that, we saw it in preseason. First, let's just start generally. It just seems like every week there is a different formation at this point. After going basically two months with the four-three-two-one, now I'm not sure anybody can reasonably guess what the Timbers are going to do from game to game. Yeah, I, I think obviously you you look at the personnel available, and I, I think that played into it. Um, maybe with the Atlanta game, they, they felt that they needed to switch to more of a five back because of just how potent Atlanta's attack was. But I think for this game, Blanco's not available. And so I think the obvious solution, as we were talking about before, when we were talking about whether a four four two could work, we, we were saying that if you want both Blanco and Valeria on the field, probably not. Um, but when Blanco, not really available to start, didn't end up playing, even though he was on the bench, I think it made sense for them to go back to something that had worked in U.S. Open Cup for them. And yeah, we, we see once again, they switch the formation um, and it ends up being effective. I, I think Valeri um, playing in the in that role at the top of the diamond um, gave him an opportunity to play a little bit more like a playmaker. Like we haven't necessarily seen the season as much as maybe the Timbers would like. I think the Timbers were able to create space. They they were able to open up um, open up space and create opportunities in the attack. I, I thought it was an effective change. And as we keep talking about week after week. Um, Tavares, he just seems to know what tactical changes he needs to make to get the most out of his team against every opponent. The thing that jumped out to me about this fit against the Sounders is something that was a little bit of a surprise because I did not think the Sounders were going to have a game plan that wasn't going to guard against the Timbers counterattack. Maybe because they were at home, maybe they were healthier than the last time they played the Timbers here, a lot healthier. They had both Christian Roldan and Ozzy Valdo Alonso in midfield. Maybe they felt that they could be a little bit more risky and not have to pay so much attention to maintaining their shape and attack. But they absolutely got killed on the counterattack. Diego Valeri being the fulcrum between defending and attacking was a big part of that. And a big part of his ability to do that was crafting out this role for him. In that way... I'm still a little bit open-minded as to how this formation actually is going to fit going forward. Maybe there are going to be specific times where Giovanni Savarisi sees that the opponent is likely to get a little bit too ambitious in their attacking shape. So he can have a Sebastian Blanco or have a Diego Valeri there to be that person coming out of attack. As is, I'm having a little bit of trouble taking very much from this weekend, in fact, and saying... This is applicable going forward because going forward, people are, are going to actually mark Larry Smiley. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I think we saw that Blanco was on the bench once he's back in. I mean, I don't see the, this being their, their go-to formation by any means. Um, and they are going to have to continue to make adjustments as teams adapt, obviously. Now, um, getting into what you're saying about Larry Smabiala, he's becoming a serious threat on set pieces. I, he's scored four goals. 
this season. I, I think that's tied for third in the team in goals scored. And they've all been headers off set pieces. So yeah. other teams have to take notice of that at this point. And he's going to be, uh, that's going to be more of a priority for other teams to start marking him and making sure he doesn't beat them with his head. I think you're right. I think he's t- tied with Samuel Armenteros for third behind Blanco and Valeri on the goal- team's goal scoring charts. It's just so simple, too. I mean, if you lose a one on one battle with Laris Mabiala, obviously he's a goal scoring threat and he's he's posing like somebody who is more likely to win those one-on-one battles than most teams. But then especially on the first goal that he scored and the chance before that that Brian Meredith made a great save on, you're just sitting there and scratching your head going, the Timbers really have not targeted any other players this year on set pieces, particularly when somebody like a Fernando Adi is not in the team. Who else are they going to (laughs) target? Maybe they can target Cascante, but it's not the biggest team in the world. If you can't take care of marking Laris Mabiala, maybe you should be in ninth or 10th place in the Western Conference. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we certainly saw um, one of the reasons, at least defensively, why it's been such a struggle for the Sounders this year. One thing that I, I do want to bring up with the four four two that I, I think I was a bit surprised about, and um, we had a question about it, so I, I think there was some surprise um, with the fan base as well, is that we saw Lawrence Olman in um, the lineup, and we saw Christian Predis on the bench. And so Joe asked... Uh, what, whether that had to do with, you know, form or tactics or, or some sort of injury or, or what, what we felt the decision was that led to Paredes being on the bench. It, not only that he was on the bench, I think this was the first regular season MLS game that he's ever been in MLS where he didn't actually play a minute because the other times yes, he came off the is. bench. So I think it's an example of just what we've been talking about all year. I say we in the first person that what I've been talking about all year just because I've been with the club as this has been transpiring. The depth of the team. And the way that Giovanni Savarese looks at that depth. So let's go, let's try to walk through this how Gio Savarese would have done it. He settles on a formation and an approach that he wants to take to Seattle. It's going to play three central midfielders. All right, well, who are the three players in this environment with this approach that are going to be most likely to be effective? We've seen in other games before that Russo Flores has been somebody that is kind of a security blanket. When it's a big stage or a special plan or an occasion that you know somebody's going to go in there and be mature and make the right choices, he's going to get the call just like he did against New York City FC when he came in for Andy Polo. Not much of a surprise. Lawrence Olo has now started five straight games across all competitions, so he clearly seems to be a form player in Savarese's mind, and he's a defensive option when you're going on the road in a rivalry game, in a game that you expect to be intense, and he's a veteran guy. And then Diego Chara plays. Yes. <laughs> but it also, in having Lawrence Olum in the lineup, allows him to move up to a number eight role. So that all makes sense. Now, then you look at the other players in the team, be it a, a Christian Paredes or a Bill Tuiloma, who played in midfield for the second time this year, second straight game, or an Eric Williamson, who was in the 18. Are any of their arguments to play more compelling than those three? And I think the answer is clearly no. So while it's surprising to all of us that Paredes was on the bench, when you walk through it, and we're only walk through it, walking through it in hindsight, I don't know how you feel about it, but it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, it was a surprise to me, and I, I, I think that for me, the question was whether Olam was going to be in there or whether Predis was, and, and obviously that changes where Char is going to play in the diamond. Um, but I, I, I was sort of expecting if they were going to go with that shape, that it would be Char kind of at the base of the diamond with Paredes and Flores um, on the sides. I, I think 
this does speak to, and you kind of allude to it, Savarese rewards players he feels like have been playing well and, and been training well and been showing well. He he doesn't want to just pull someone from the lineup for no reason. And, and obviously it's a competition. Somebody's going to have to sit. But I, I think he he has faith in Olam right now, and Olam's been doing well for him. And I, I think this is an example of Savarese rewarding him and fi- feeling like he's going to step up and this is a formation and shape that's going to work for us. And I think it was an interesting change. It was definitely one that surprised me. I wasn't sure how it was going to play out. But um, as we keep seeing over and over again, Savaresi's instinct seems to be serving the Timbers quite well right now. And I think to a certain extent, we're actually overlooking a little bit more obvious and more compelling of a lineup change. Dyron Espria getting a start yeah. forward in a big game on the road, uh, obviously what turned into a historic day. I think as surprising as Paredes not being in the team is, Dyron being in the 11 was more surprising to me. And obviously, I got to see that as it was transpiring last week. But before the point where we saw what the lineup was likely to be and the shape was likely to be, I was thinking that this was going to be a good week to go back to the 4-3-2-1, have the three midfielders that you just identified, uh, Chara, Olum, and Paredes in the three, and then move Flores up to the two with Valeri. And I thought that was a way to make it all fit. But another thing that I've been talking about with people all year is the Timbers' lack of speed up top. Valeri, Blanco, Armenteros, none of them are super slow. Blanco and Armenteros in short spaces can be quick, but none of them are defense stretching fast. And I think that's part of the reason that Aspria has gotten so many chances this year, be it at the end of games uh, to come on as a substitute uh, at the end, even when we're trying to come back in New York, he was put into the nine position to try to beat the line there. Or on Saturday, where you have a defense that has Kim Kee-hee and Chad Marshall. And we saw that Kim should have picked up a yellow card very early in that game, getting beat by the speed of Armenteros. There were opportunities there for Dyron Espria to have an impact. And I think just like Lawrence Alum, this is a player who, continuing to work hard, continuing to get the message, having to go down to T2 and show he's willing to work hard is being rewarded with time. Yeah, and I, I think the, you mentioned it with going down to T2. Uh, that you, you, Obviously, Aspria has, has gone. It's been an up-and-down situation in terms of kind of his favor within the team this year, and it, it shows something that he earned came to the point where he um, saw Russie made the decision to put him in the starting lineup. Uh, I, I think... It was less shocking, obviously, because Audi wasn't available. And if they were going with this formation, who nest, maybe who else is going to play there? Um, unless, I mean, they could have potentially gone to Bobasi or, or something like that. Uh, but yeah, um, given kind of the trajectory of Espria's season, to see him now at the point where he's in favor and is earning a start in, in a big game like this um, does say something. Let's flip to the other side of the team. 3-2 win is great. The worst attack in Major League Soccer, and you find a way to give up two goals. How concerned should we be about that? Yeah, I, I think you you don't want to give up two goals to Seattle, given how they've played this year. For me, CenturyLink is a hard place to play, though, and it is a rivalry game. Seattle did have a much better lineup this time around than when the Timbers last played them. Um, for me... We'll see if this becomes a concern going into the next game and the games after that and if this is a real problem. But in this isolated game for me, in a rivalry game on the road at a hard place to play in a hostile environment where the stakes are high and there's a lot of emotions running, it, it I was more, I was pleased with the Timbers' ability to come back 
after conceding those goals. And that's what stuck with me a lot more than the fact that they had conceded them. And I think when you look at the individual goals, obviously on the set piece, you've just got to mark Chad Marshall. As much as I'm saying, it's Larry Smabiala, how do you not mark him? <laughs> it's Chad Marshall his, who has been doing this exactly. for a decade plus in Major League Soccer. How do you not mark him? Well, he was marked. Larry's lost that bot battle. Larry's made up for it a couple minutes later by getting the winning goal. I know a lot of people focused on the first goal. I think a lot of things happened on that first goal that were weird, starting with how Nicholas Ladero won back possession just because Andres Flores and Zedek Valentin had this moment where it's just like, oh, you're, I thought you were going to get that ball. And then Ladero screeches in, is able to cut back on his left and play one of the best crosses you're going to see in a long time. And Alvis Powell and Jeff Atanello, basically, I think they got in a moment where Jeff was asking him to push up. His momentum is going the wrong way. Rodriguez is making a great run. I don't think there was really any way that Alvis was going to get that ball even though it's obvious when you look at the tape that you have to ask, should he have been protecting that far post? But sometimes things like this happen. Uh, Maybe Jeff should have actually cut off that ball before it hit the the far post. I don't think so. I think that's just a goal where things just happen. you got to prevent that service. You've got to not have that miscommunication. And then when Jeff and Alvis are doing the positioning, they've got to pick the right moments to move the man. So I think all those three things are important. But I don't look at these things as systemic problems, so I'm not too worried about the coming game. Yeah, and that's that's... My feeling, it, it, we'll see how it, this coming game goes. We'll see if it becomes a problem over time. But um, in this one game, I, I'm not going to, that's not what I really take away from it. I, I think I do want to touch before I move on is just the Timbers June as a whole. Cause we talked a lot about how difficult it was going to be for them to maintain at, at the end of May, it was a winning streak um, going into June. They, they come out of June undefeated. They only get one win. Um, and I believe, three ties in June. How do we feel uh, about how the Timbers did in this June? I think it's a step forward. Again, you you talked about the record and how on a points per game basis, it doesn't look as good. But coming into this month, we were talking about how much tougher the schedule was getting. Kansas City at home, Atlanta on the road, Seattle on the road, Open Cup rearing its head, making things more complicated. So they went 3-0-3 overall during that time. And I think... In May, if you would have told us that was going to happen, we would have been like, that doesn't seem likely at all. You're you're saying that they're going to get a result in Atlanta and not slip against Seattle or Sporting? No. And for- Sporting without Chara, if yeah. we want to remember. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And they've had they've had Fernando Adi go down with injury. They've had Liam Ridgewell unavailable for a little bit of time here. So they continue to manage those obstacles. I think they have to look at it in terms of the progression of their season and they're a much stronger team now than they were at the end of may no matter what the results say yeah i think that finishing the month on a high note with the win i I think probably gives the team a little bit more confidence so it doesn't feel like oh we're on an unbeaten streak but we haven't been able to get those three points in a while um outside of the u.s open cup but yeah i I mean of the games um in the month we looked at la galaxy as an opportunity um for the timbers to get three points and obviously that that game didn't necessarily go as well as they wanted it to go. But Sporting Kansas City without Chara, that looked like it was going to be a tough one. And I, I absolutely didn't expect them to go on the road to Atlanta and put in that type of performance. So Yeah, I remember that prediction. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this was a pretty successful June. And, and I think they're now set up pretty well going to July um, to potentially more favorable schedule. I, I think it's three of four at home. They do have a tough game. Uh, two games at LAFC, if you count U.S. Open Cup mm-hmm. as well. But, I, I mean, they face teams, a few teams below the red line at home um, during this July, and we'll see, we'll see how that turns out. 
Great challenge going to LAFC, having to play them twice, particularly since LAFC is going to have Carlos Vela back, and they've assigned their new forward who I think stole a player of the week award from Larry's Maviala, but <laughs> credit to him, hat tricks are hat tricks. Uh, let's go to one final question before we transition into looking at this weekend's action. It's from Justin. Justin asks, what sides go best with roasted flounder? Oh, that's mean. I'm thinking something light, maybe some braised greens and lemon couscous. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of with Justin uh, sort of on that. I, I think I'd go with maybe some quinoa and some broccoli or something. Something feeling very healthy and you're feeling really good about yourself while you're eating it. So I think that fits the mood. You both are so wrong on this. What fits the mood is reinforcing Portland's dominance. And for me, when I think of what Portland's cuisine has been for the last five years or so, maybe they're transitioning out of this and going towards like a slightly more Southeast Asian moment around here. But for the last five years, pork has dominated the Portland cuisine. So I think what you do is you take the flounder, you stuff it with pork belly, and then you wrap it in bacon. Oh, my. And you you basically say... Portland has overwhelmed this flounder, and that's how you serve it. That is a that is an interesting meal. It is the last meal that you may ever have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's transition into talking about the coming game. It's going to be on Saturday, 8 p.m., Providence Park. The third time this year, San Jose will be facing the Timbers. The second time here at Providence Park. The last time they face each other here, open cup play, 2 to nothing victory. That was Portland's first step towards the quarterfinals of that competition. Again, like last week, we're put in a position where the preview isn't going to be that intense because it just hasn't been that long since we've seen this team. Yeah. Nothing much has changed except for the fact that they still haven't won a game since. <laughs> yeah, I think um, they've drawn their last three games, but they haven't won in their last eight MLS games. So um, this is a team that maybe has done a little bit better recently, but uh, <laughs> that's very incremental. Um, th- this... I, I this is not a great team. Um, I, I agree, <laughs> and, and I, I don't see this Earthquakes team becoming a great team this year either. I, I think this is a winnable game for the Timbers. They've seen this team before. They went down to San Jose and beat them one nothing on the road. They've seen them in the U.S. Open Cup playing a, a pretty good lineup overall, and, and were able to easily get the two nothing win there. Um, this is one of those games that we've talked about before that could turn into a trap game if the Timbers let it. Because this is a team that I think the Timbers should go in at home and expect three points and anything less is going to be a disappointment. And it's one that could be easy to overlook. But at the same time, I think when we've seen with the Sunbeam streak and just with the mentality that Savaresi has kind of put within his group, it doesn't feel like this group is overlooking any opponent. It doesn't. I think the last time the Timbers were probably in this situation is when LA Galaxy came in here in regular season play. I don't think they gave the performance that they would have yeah. liked that day. So maybe that'll serve as a reminder. Maybe it served as a reminder when LA Galaxy came back in open cup play and the Timbers played pretty well that time. Just like any other Major League Soccer team, this team has good players. They've got Magnus Eriksson on the right side, who has been a good player. They've got Vako Vasily Kajishashvili on the left side. He's a very good player. Danny Houston, I think, is a decent MLS forward, which means if you le- let him have opportunities. And he had a good June. Yes, exactly. Against some competition that you look at and you say, the Timbers are better than that than those teams. They should defend better than those teams. Therefore, Houston should be pretty quiet. Well, if the Timbers screw up, he's not going to be quiet. 
this team is talented enough to start pushing Chris Wondolowski to the bench at this point. Does that mean they're as, t- as talented, as good as the Timbers? No, but obviously the Timbers' biggest challenge here is going to be a mental challenge, and it's unclear how they'll meet that. I think they'll meet it fine based on the last four months of play, but they still need to meet it. Yeah, I mean, they still have to prove it every every week, and I think that's what Tavaresi is going to say um, in his press conference today, that they have to be prepared for this game. They can't look past it. They have to have the right mentality every week. And this is, this is a game that uh, good teams win. Um, and so if the Timbers want to prove that they are a good team and as good as they've been playing, this is the type of game you go in and, and you know that you're going to win and you find a way to do it. How good a team the Timbers will be over the next week, over the next month, throughout the rest of the season, will be determined starting July 10th. That's when the one-month summer transfer window is going to open. Opens July 10th, closes August 8th. Obviously, the crowd here at Providence Park, if you can pick that up, in the, uh, if the microphones are picking that up, the crowd here is very excited about <laughs> this transfer window. There is a summer camp that's going on the field right now, and they're playing a crossbar challenge that it looks like an eight-year-old boy just nailed the crossbar from about 20 yards out. So congratulations to him. And if his parents are listening, congratulations to you too. <laughs> but the summer transfer window, we've heard a little bit more reporting based on what you already had put out there, the fact that the Timbers plan to be active in this window. We know they're going to be active going after an attacking player. What else do we think is likely to happen over this next month? I'll start it like this. The Timbers have not only a full roster of 30 players. They have Lucas Milano, who doesn't count to their roster right now, who's looming out there. So as we see players potentially come in, including Lucas Milano, there are players that are going to have to go out too. Yeah. Well, I I would be surprised to see Milano come in. Um, really? I, yeah, I, I would expect the Timbers to find um, either ultimately a deal to, to move him or, or another loan deal to yeah, find him on. So I just, just want to say really. <laughs> like, hmm, oh. So we'll. So I think that'll be solved one way or another. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there will be players that the Timbers might be looking to move. It sounds like they're going to be trying to add a significant attacking option, and to bring that player in, I, I think they might have to make a significant move to free up some potentially some cap space, um, although they might have um, some available resources from um, carrying over from the offseason, um, but also roster space. So I, I think we've talked about uh, Davi Guzman being an option to potentially move. We'll see if, if he still is. I don't think his World Cup um, campaign really did much of anything to raise or, or necessarily you know, lower his stock too much. I, I think right. it's um, pretty much the same when you look at where he's at. Um, there are other options. I mean, they could, you know, potentially look to move Audi if they felt that Armenteros was, was their option. Um, but at the same time, they, they've kind of carved out the, the ability to have a 4-4-2. They've been able to use both those players and, and Audi obviously has been a big player for the Timbers. We don't know if we need, they need to move someone with that level of a contract to bring in whoever, whatever types of attackers are going to bring in. But I, I think, there's going to be some interesting moves. Um, and we, I think it's all speculation at this point. I, I think in the next week, we'll probably have more information. There'll probably be more sort of floating around rumors coming out. Um, but I think it's likely that both will see a, maybe a few signings, maybe one big signing, and, and potentially a few players going out. We already know that Victor Arboleda is not yes. with the team right now. He still counts on the roster, so they need to find a place for him if they're going to open up that roster yeah. spot. But... Just like, just because he's not with the team right now, he's back in Colombia, doesn't mean he doesn't count against that magical 30 number. I think we're getting to a point 
with the timbers. And of course, with this kind of stuff, I have to be careful. This is a good place to insert that I work for the team. and I'm not going to, on this podcast, tell you who the team is going to be going after, et cetera, et cetera. What I can say is that you look at the trend across Major League Soccer, and there are teams that have clearly opted into using all of the resources the league is making available, be it TAM, be it, be it um, increases in general allocation money, being the ability now to move those resources around the league and take advantage of the teams that aren't in a position to invest that money. And the Timbers, despite their relatively small market size, have said, we're playing this game. We're doing it. Are we going to go out and sign Zlatan Ibrahimovic? No. Are we going to make sure we have three quality designated players? Use all the TAM. Use the elect, the, uh, the voluntary TAM. Go out there and every single transfer window, try to improve our squad. Clearly, yes. So I think the conversations we're having right now, we're going to have them this winter. We're going to have them next summer, et cetera, et cetera. We've just got to get used to the fact that almost every window, the team is going to try to bring in one or two players. And that means there are going to be some tough decisions on one or two other players because there's never going to be a point with this team, I think, where they're just going to be these vacant roster spots sitting around underused. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's true. Um, it'll be interesting to see where, where what areas they try to move it. And I mean, I think we expect an attacking addition coming in, but I think there's other areas potentially, you know, goalkeeper was a something we had talked about before where we could see the move. I am another player that comes to mind right now. I do wonder what their ultimate plan is for Vitas, um, given that he hasn't been able to work his way back in the lineup. I don't think his stock's very high right now, but he does make, um, he's on a pretty decent contract as well. So that's another player um, that I wonder what his future is with this team. So I, It'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting... It's always going to be. Let's talk about some players who are in the team right now. Not to say that Vitas isn't, but we have players in the team who are injured. Uh, Let's give some updates on those. Liam Ridgewell wasn't actually injured, was away from the team for personal reasons. If you're on social media, you know those personal reasons have been resolved to a celebratory positive as he and his significant other have welcomed a child in the last week. So uh, Liam's life is, I don't want to say getting back to normal, but it's getting back to what his new normal is <laughs> yeah, going his new to normal. Be. Yeah, so congratulations to him. Uh, Fernando Adi is still in kind of this evaluation. I don't want to say evaluation stage, although I think Giovanni Savarese later today will use that word in assessing whether he will play against San Jose. But he's in that place where muscle injuries sometimes go, and you have to see on a week-to-week basis how they go. Um, not not exactly unfamiliar with our Adi, considering it seemed like two months last year we were yeah. kind of going, eh, it could be a week. I think <laughs> Caleb kept saying something like 14 days, and 14 days became like 140, 40 days. <laughs> ultimately but that's where he is um sebastian blanco was kind of more held out for precautionary reasons last week he made the 18 but it just looked like a quad slash deep thigh bruise that he carried over from atlanta he just wasn't ready for 90 minutes and then the situation didn't arise to play him in seattle so he is training again as is rory miller and he made his uh triumphant return this weekend starting for t2 in reno albeit in a loss for team. Yeah, but pretty incredible return for Roy Miller uh, after an injury where I think a lot of us felt that might be the end of his career. Yeah, well, and uh, like we talked about before, just one of those great guys to have around, so everybody was thrilled to see. They were even thrilled last week when he started practicing with T2 because that meant, <laughs> wow, you're, act- you're actually going to be playing this weekend as Giovanni Savarese made sure yeah, to tell you. Me. <laughs> I actually think you were right on that one, by the way. I think he did say July. 
And I then, think he had said July, but then he, he then he I, I said so he's going to be back by July, and Savaresti immediately said no June. That, I, I, I said June. I said June. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's right. He's the coach. He's right. Um, let's go to a couple more listener questions before honoring our former co-host slash partner with his memorial hot take segment. Uh, Chris asked. The official line from the Timbers has been that Adi and Armenteros will compete and offer different options. But given Armenteros' performances, how long will they really sit a DP before it becomes evidently poor use of resources in a salary cap system? How long will he be there? Oh, sorry. I added that little bit in the end, and <laughs> you read directly. Um, my, I, my question I wanted to add, ask, add to that was how long will both these players be on the roster? Okay. Well, I think it... It almost defeats the purpose to say just because one person is playing good, you should change your plan. The plan is for both players to play well. So just because Armenteros is playing well doesn't mean that your plan was flawed. I mean, what did you bring somebody in and hoped one failed? That being said, I think part of Chris's, Chris's question is really important. The, use, the prime use of those designated player spots. I think it's a great question to ask, but the simple fact is strikers will always be a premium price. So even if you have a striker that is not playing every day, playing every game, you can conceive of a scenario where they're still a valuable part of your team and the best use of your designated player resources because you're not going to go out and get a DP center back. You could, but you're going to be overpaying. You're not going to go out and get a DP goalkeeper. There are just certain positions that you have to pay a designated player price in order to get, which is why when you look at the designated players for the Timbers, they're creative attacking midfielders and they're strikers. Yeah, I, I think that it's likely that we're going to see Audi through this season. And and if he doesn't, if this season goes kind of how it has gone and it, it doesn't improve and we do not seeing him scoring consistently or getting consistent minutes, the Timbers are going to find another use for that designated player spot. I, I think that's makes a lot of sense. I think, as I mentioned before, you know, there's a chance if, if they felt like they had a designated player out there and this was the time in the summer transfer window they could get that player. I think that's the designated player spot they would need to free up. That mm-hmm. would be the obvious place where they would look for that, I think, based on the performances at the moment. So, yes, that's a possibility. Um, but but I'm not sure if we're going to see that at, at at this point. I mean, I think Armenteros has done well, but I'm not sure if he's necessarily proved that he is going to be the consistent striker of the future that the Timbers need. In terms of how long Armenteros could be here, I, I think that because of his loan option, they do the Timbers do have an option to pick him up for next year, and he said, and he has said that much. Um, so I think it's likely if he continues to produce that he will be at Portland Timber at least for next season. Um, but whether he... Whether they make the decision to go with Armenteros over Audi, whether they make the decision to go out and get another striker, I, I think these questions are still up in the air because I don't think either of those players this season, um, Armenteros has obviously done well recently and is starting to maybe earn that starting spot if they're going with one forward. But I don't think either of those players has proved that they've been maybe the consistent goal-scoring force the Timbers necessarily need. And I just want to circle back on... Uh, the last part of Chris's question, because that's specifically what you just said. Ha- Chris asked, how long will they sit a DP? And you kind of outlined it, this, this whole year, maybe. And to say that he's sitting, I think that's an exaggeration. But I don't think Chris means it so literally either. But the what you outlined, I think, is how general managers have to think about this. It's not so much right now, okay, is he a DP or not a DP? And is that efficient or not efficient? They're looking at it in terms of these are the players that we have. How are they contributing to the team? And as long as Adi is contributing to the team in a way 
that works, then that's fine. They don't have another designated player that in, that's going to take that spot anytime soon. So it's really just a matter of can this work? And for large parts of this year, it has, and then some other parts it hasn't, mostly because of fitness or Armenteros still settling in. But I do think every offseason you have to evaluate everything, and if it gets to the end of the season and they determine that it just didn't have the right balance, then I think it's fine. If it's if we're in a situation where Adi finishes the year with like seven goals and five assists, and they felt like he was producing as well as he could have possibly produced during the time they gave him, I think they'll be fine keeping him. And it, of course, it goes beyond stats. Who who can say it? Um, let's move on to another question here. Uh, David asks: Now that we have a part of a season behind us, how would you compare Caleb Porter and Giovanni Savarese? I, I think they're very different. One's, one's a little taller. <laughs> are they from very different places in the world? They are from different places in the world. <laughs> I think that, yeah, like you said, they're very different. Yeah, I, I think Porter, certainly we, we saw someone who was more set in, in his formation and style play. Um, I think Caleb did adjust over time. We saw that whole Porter ball of 2013 um, morph into something else. I mean, the Timbers, the counterattack was something that the Timbers are, are both has been effective for the Timbers both this year and in the final years under Caleb Porter. So I think there's some similarities there. I think both coaches were willing to adjust and recognize what they need to do to get results. But I think Savarese is a lot more tactically flexible uh, than Caleb Porter. Um, and he's shown that throughout this year. And I think probably to, to some degree, maybe Caleb Porter thought more of what we need to focus on ourselves. I think that was a, a mindset that the team often would say we we're focusing on ourselves, what we need to do. And I, I think for Savaresi, he's probably focusing a bit more on the opponent in, in every situation. Um, I, I think he, not that Caleb didn't, but I, I think Savaresi really analyzes each opponent and that's how he sort of changes his formation to potentially um, try to get the best result against that opponent in every single week. Uh, I also think they they both just have different personalities, um, both competitive guys, but I think in a very different way. The only other thing that I would add is, and I don't think one of these is better than the other. There are coaches that are very academic in how they approach things. The theory of this shape, how it should be executed. When a, when a team does X, what do you do in response? And then there are coaches that are very much nuts and bolts. This person turns their hip a certain way, so if we get our fullback doing this, we should be able to take advantage of that regardless of the formation or the shape. If you consider that a spectrum, these two people, these two coaches occupy very different points on that spectrum. I think it's embodied by the fact that Caleb Porter's practices, a lot of times under an hour. Giovanni Savarese's practices, most of the time over an hour and a half in each session. Savarese needs to get into those nuts and bolts. He needs to tell somebody that when the center back steps this way, this is what we're doing. Yeah, we're playing a certain formation, but the, the theory of that is less important than this practical execution. Whereas Caleb is going to spend a lot of time going, this is what we're doing. This is the theory of us. This is how we're moving. This is how we shift when this happens. So I think it's very compelling. And, um, you know, as somebody like Pep Guardiola, who is very, very academic and philosophical shows, you can go to the heights of the game being somebody that looks at it from almost a textbook perspective. But then you can list any of number of other coaches, someone like a Diego Simeone at Atletico Madrid. And that's somebody who will beat any team in the world playing a 4-4-2 because he convinces his players 
that they could beat them. So I think it's very, very interesting. Let's go to our next segment, uh, one that both of us had a lot of trouble with this week, the Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude, brought to you by Chris Reifer himself. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, if you want to sponsor this segment, Chris, that's fine. Jamie, I'm going to go first. And coming off of Seattle versus Portland week, Seattle versus Portland week on a number of levels, I want to say this. I think soccer banter is never good. <laughs> Actually, I'll put it a different way. I think some soccer banter is good as far as the idea and the execution. But the end game, when you think of what it actually accomplishes, it's never a positive. The only, like, let's take the whole Portland campaign that the Sounders executed. I don't think it was a good campaign. I don't think a lot of people in Portland thought it was a good campaign. Not because it targeted Portland. He based a whole campaign upon two places having the same name. I don't think that's very clever. People in Seattle thought it was clever. People that I respect in Seattle who were smart people thought it was clever or at least like a good-hearted way to go about banter. People in Portland were never going to like that campaign, <laughs> no matter how clever it was. So when I think about this, I go, so what's the good? What's the bad? What are the pluses, the minuses? Like, what are we actually accomplishing? Your base is always going to love everything. And the people outside your base are always going to hate everything. So not only are we not accomplishing anything, we're not moving the needle. We're just getting people more mad or more entrenched and more tribal in how they feel. I think soccer banter can be incredibly clever, but the effect of it, it's its not only like a, a zero-sum game, it's actually a net negative to the world. I like soccer banter. You're a net negative to the world. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I think most people I thought, are like you, though. I, I thought it was funny when the, the Timbers beat LAFC and did the little cap cap flip to the show. I can't, I can't comment on that. <laughs> thought that was funny. I'm sure LAFC Kayla fans... Kayla Knapp is 200 feet away from us. I absolutely cannot comment on that. <laughs> I'm sure LAFC fans didn't like that. But I, I think, you know, even I've seen some of the videos the Timbers have put out this year, I think, have been... I mean, as the social media presence for the Timbers have grown, I, I think they've put out some very funny videos, the, the deadpan. I thought the... Um, was it the, docu- the Seattle documentary that they did? That was pretty funny. I mean, I think that's a good example. I think that their response to the Galaxy last year, I thought those were very well executed, high production value, great concept, kind of high concept even videos. What's your goal? Like, I guess with with the, the goals of those videos, which I don't, I've never been in a meeting where we're like, okay, what's the goal here with this video? But the fans loved them. So I think that accomplishes something in and of itself. But like... Most banter is not like that. Most banter is bancy, and it ends up being kind of a net negative to the universe. So I would almost consider those videos not banter. Well, I, I guess it, I guess it depends how you define it then. But I, I like the I like the high quality, uh, high production value banter that we're seeing more and more with okay. social media teams. Not just here. I, I think we're seeing more and more social media teams have sort of more of a creative element, and it's becoming um, a lot of original, interesting content um, in both the soccer world and other sports. And yeah. I do really like that social media um, as a form is sort of, I think, evolving. And it's becoming, a, I think, a lot more compelling than it has been. And in a lot of ways worse. In, 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 there's a lot of different ways. But in this yeah. specific like team-oriented, um, ha- having creative teams and people contributing that are working for clubs, there's a lot of cool stuff out there I think teams are doing. Jamie, I think you have a hot take that, one, is one of the coldest takes that we've ever had in this segment. But two, people will actually agree with, whereas mine, I don't think any of our listeners actually would agree with that take. Yeah, I I just can't uh, stop talking about the NWSL broadcasts. Uh, that's apparently the only thing I think about. Um, it has come up again. Why are you um, so obsessed with them? I, I am very obsessed with them. Um, <laughs> mean girls mean fear. <laughs> so, yeah, I... Uh, 
I think NWSL fans have seen at this point that the um, Go90 will be going away at the end of July. And so Go90s had the exclusive streaming rights for NWSL games that aren't on Lifetime or ESPN News, as we've discussed the move to ESPN News for the Game of the Week a few weeks back. God, totally changed the landscape. <laughs> um, but Go90 will be going away. And so the majority of the games after July 30th uh, will be broadcast on NWSLsoccer.com for the remainder of the year. That is not a long-term solution, and I don't expect that's what the NWSL plans to be a long-term solution. I Go90, I think, was a beneficial um, beneficial to the league because it was a they were paying Verizon was paying a rights paying fee to the league, and I, I think that was helpful as you're growing a young league to be able to get a rights paying fee uh, for broadcast. But now, I think this is an opportunity, and I don't know if the NWSL will take it, but now that Go90 is going away, I think this is an opportunity for the NWSL to rethink these broadcasts, especially the ones that are being streamed and not necessarily on Lifetime or ESPN News or on national TV. I think the rollout of Go90 was problematic, obviously, because it wasn't even available online at first. I think when it finally got going, it was okay, but the broadcast quality isn't what I think it could have been. I I think the NWSL should take a step back now and use this as an opportunity to say, how can we really improve the production value here? If we were going to keep streaming games, if we're not going to be able to get a TV deal in which all our games are on um, national TV and we're going to have to continue working with a streaming service for the majority of our games, how can we take this and make the best product possible? And I think there's a lot of room for growth. And if the NWSL doesn't use this as an opportunity to look at which ways they can grow and and take advantage of that, I I think it'll be a waste. Bring back and shots. Yes. Uh, Bring back Angela Harrison, who was the color analyst for the first year of Thorne's broadcast. And let's bring on our review of the last week of Thorne soccer. I think for a lot of people, it was going to be a disappointing week, uh, starting with the Wednesday night game here. One you predicted would be a three to nothing victory for the Thorns. Perfectly sensible prediction. And over the first hour to 75 minutes of this game, the game played out as if it was going to be a three nothing win. Thorns were up one nothing for much of that time. Sky Blue gets a late penalty in their favor. Carly Lloyd converts. The game ends up being a 1-1 draw, only Sky Blue's third result and third point of the season. Jamie, I'm going to give you some points for this. Actually, I'm not the point giver. I encourage you to give yourself some points for this because for 75 minutes, you did have the spirit of the game right. You know, I, I can't I can't give myself points for this. Be I, nice I don't, to yourself. I don't, I don't, I, I'm ready to do a 3-0 win. Well, I'm not saying give yourself <laughs> however 74,000 no, points. I, I think I was looking... At this week, um, as we talked about in the pod last week, I was very optimistic uh, about where the Thorns were at. I thought they were getting healthy. Obviously, there's a lot of factors that they were not getting quite as healthy as I thought, as we'll get into. Um, but I, I, I thought this was going to be a big week for them to move up the standings. And I, I think with both the games, um, it went kind of the exact opposite direction of how I was predicting. So no, I don't think I'm going to give myself any points. I get zero points um, because they did not win three, nothing. They did not get three points. And I think this was a disappointment. Um, You side bet sky blue gets less than four shots on target. They got exactly four. See, I feel like I should get zero points for this because it was not that aggressive of a bet anyway. Yeah. Um, We'll give you another 0.5 points. Thank you, Jamie. 
So. You, were, you were actually a very kind and generous person, just <laughs> as the Thorns were kind and generous to Sky Blue yes. last Wednesday. Uh, the generosity started in the 24 hours before a kickoff, and uh, 24 hours is actually a little long. I guess a couple hours before a kickoff when we learned Tobin Heath was going to be a late scratch. And then during warm-ups, Emily Menges was a late scratch, Tobin Heath ankle, Emily Menges Hip is what it was classified yeah, like, on the injury report. Yeah, it ended up being classified as a hip. It's like just a general problem in the middle of her yeah. body. Um, and then Emily Sonic came out at halftime and what at the time looked like it must have been an injury, but we learned after the game a very sensible explanation that the Thorns are playing three games and nine games, two of them on turf, two away from home, and this person's coming off a back injury. So they tried to preserve her in minutes. Uh, either way... Those abs- I don't know if those absences cost the Thorns because we have seen performances throughout this year that were very much like that Wednesday performance where it was like, hey, the Thorns look good, and they didn't get full points. What did you make of it? Yeah, I, I think the Thorns let Sky Blue hang around too much. And I, I think that, yes, you can point to the absences uh, to, to some degree. It's always tough losing players, especially if – a few hours before kickoff, you have a plan that you've trained all week and suddenly you have to adjust. And again, the Thorns aren't able to play their top back line. That has been an issue all season. We've said that. They've only started their top back line, I think, once this season. Um, and in this case, the person who was pulled back into the back line is somebody that I believe has only played central defense once before in her professional career. Uh, somebody, Celeste Bure, who we've been talking yeah. about, coming in, providing a valuable uh, addition to the midfield since the international break, she's played in four games in a row now. She's been good, but after Sonnet went out, they pulled her back into central defense. I heard people talking about this. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I. it's tough. It's tough to make these changes and, and force someone to come back into central defense. Would you have gone with her or Kelly Hubley? I probably would have gone with Kelly Hubley. Oh, armchair quarterback here. Second <laughs> guess. No, it's. I think it was a tough choice. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in Mark Parsons' shoes. Um, and obviously, Celeste has been playing well for the team. And he's, Mark's been someone, and you saw this last year with Sykes. And you've seen this even this year with him moving person into more of a wingback type role. He has effectively been able to take players that are, are more in one position and change their position and get them to get the most out of them. So it's not, it doesn't surprise me necessarily that he wants to keep a player um, in the lineup and maybe tweak their position who's been doing well for the team. Um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm probably second guessing cause I saw the game and everything. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I think the story of the game though was, was before, you know, before halftime because I, the Thorns could have put this game away if they had Absolutely. done better with their chances. They created opportunities. They created good enough opportunities that they should have been able to take a lead and put the game away and, um, you know, find, find a way to way earlier than talking about Carly Lloyd getting a penalty. The game should have been done and they yeah. didn't do that. And so they let Sky Blue hang around. So all these other questions come up. Did this change cost them? Why did, why did they concede this penalty? Those wouldn't necessarily have been questions if they had found a way to put the game away when they should have. Three of their last four games now, they haven't gotten a goal from open play. They're obviously shut out in Seattle. Set piece goal against Sky Blue. Deflection from Sink to uh, Lindsay at the edge of the six. And then Lindsay winning a second ball in Chicago to create the goal there. Obviously a very good performance in Houston. One that had us talking about how they potentially turned a corner. There are so many corners in this Thorn season that I think we should start just looking at it as a straight line that has to eventually get to 
the playoffs to the championship game to the level that North Carolina is at by the time game 26 comes around. But one thing that you have in the notes that I think is interesting that I want to talk about because I want to talk about anything that I don't fully understand. Why are the Thorns struggling at home? You see this as a home road thing? I don't completely see it as a home road thing, but I think that you look at the last two years and one of the reasons why the Thorns won the NWSL Shield and finished second uh, in the NWSL last year and were able to host a home playoff game is because they were dominant at home. Their road form was fine. Um, and, and the road form, I think, has been okay this year overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were absolutely dominant at home. And I should have looked up the record because I've ridden it a number of times um, before. But they did not lose at Providence Park um, under in the first two years of Mark Parsons. And this year, they, I think their record at home is worse than on the road. It, it's been problematic. And so... While I don't necessarily think it's this season comes down to being a home road problem, I think that something has changed in which they were able, every time they came and played in front of their home fans, they were able to find a way to get three points. They were able, even if they didn't put in their best performance, to grind out these wins. And that's not happening this year. And I, I think that is one of the biggest changes you see just in terms of where they were in the last few years. Um, and wh- how they were able to carry that road form to their place in the standings. So while you were talking, I was able to look it up because we have the internet and it's 2018. <laughs> Over the first two years under Mark Parsons, they were 18-2-2 at home. Yeah. And the games that they lost, I can't remember the game that they lost at home their first year. It might have been even to Washington. I'm not sure. But last year, the game that they lost was the game that Sam Kerr exploded. So it's like, Sam Kerr explodes, you lose the game. No <laughs> surprise there. This year, they are 2-3-2 two, and two at home. So they've already lost more games this year at home than they did in the first two years under Mark Parsons. And I thought that you explained that really well because home games represent an opportunity, basically. You have advantages. You have things you can leverage. And ultimately, you don't want people to feel comfortable coming here and competing like teams in the first two or three years of this league did feel like they came here and felt comfortable and felt excited about playing here. I think, to me, the way I look at it is that that effect is antecedent to the cause. And the cause is just they're not playing well. So when they play well, I think that positive, the positives of their play will be amplified by the home field advantages. So it kind of takes care of itself. The home part of it will. But they just got to get to playing well. Uh, let's go to, let's see, actually, I was going to transition to the next game, but I think we need to talk about one other thing. How disappointing do you think this draw will ultimately be? It would felt so disappointing at the time, but now against the two worst teams in the league, Sky Blue and Washington, they have two points at home in two games against those teams. And they're in an environment this year where points are so scarce. Now, they do have three games over their last nine against those two teams, so they have a chance to make it up. But even after the Seattle result this weekend that was so disappointing, dropping points to Sky Blue feels worse. Yeah. The, the Memorial has been a really tough place for the Thorns to play. They've it's have been a Memorial ground. One, <laughs> yeah. They have one win there at, at Memorial since since the rain started playing there. That was last year. Uh, but yeah, it's been a tough place to play. Seattle's a good team. In and of itself, a 1-0 loss, it's disappointing, but you can understand how you can go on the road to Seattle and lose one to nothing. In the context of this week, where you drop points to the worst team in the league at home and then go on the road and get a loss, it feel, it's just unacceptable. I mean, with a team that's trying to compete to make a playoff spot, you can't waste opportunities like that. And so they've had a lot more pressure on them, I think, going to Seattle, given that they lost, or that they drew. For me, it feels like a loss. No, exactly. Um, that it they feels drew like home. that to the team, too. Yeah, they drew at home. And, 
you can't drop those points. I, I mean, you look at where the Thorns are at, and we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but they're in sixth place right now. And it is very close. Um, Seattle in second place is only three points ahead of them. Um, Thorns have nine games left in their season. Few teams have a game in hand on them, Utah and Seattle. But it's very close between those two through six uh, place teams, even um, Houston's not out of it in seventh place. Then, but so the Thorns can still get back in it. They still have the potential if they can turn things around and start getting wins and, and racking up the points. But given how close this race is, and given that the Thorns haven't necessarily shown that they're suddenly going to turn things on and go on a winning streak like they did last year, it, it's it's costly. Mm-hmm. It, it's very costly for them to not take advantage of the games they have to win. And playing the worst team in the league at home, that's a must-win game. One of the virtues of there being so many teams active in this playoff race, everybody from two to seven, is that a lot of times these teams are going to be playing each other. They're not going to have a surge of like all the teams in the league go to the top of the table because there's not going to be that many points available. So I don't think the Thorns have to all of a sudden start playing good on Friday. And they don't need to have to all of a sudden play start playing good the week after that. I think after four or five weeks, though, they are going to find themselves in a situation where, one, we have to stop dropping points. That'll be a just a reality at some point. But then two, and probably the bigger thing, they're going to run out of time to reach their own potential. We talk about their playoff chase, the idea that in the playoffs, it's two games. really doesn't matter what North Carolina is playing now. If anything, it's good to know you have to reach that level. But at some point, they run out of time. And if they're going to run out of time, to me, it's just might as well not even make the playoffs. This team is either a championship caliber team is going to compete for that. If it inches over the line in fourth place and it's still not playing well, that's already going to feel like the season's lost. Yeah, I mean, you look at, I think it was the 2014 Thorns who who made to the semifinals, went yeah, on the road example. to Kansas City. That didn't feel like a good season. Uh, there was no there was no excitement coming out of it's, that. Just it's as a great a, example. Yeah, because the, to me, thinking back on that season, even though they had won in Kansas City the year before, going into that game, it's just like, I don't feel like this team is even playoff caliber. And they just didn't feel like a team that knew what to do to win a must-win game. Yeah, and this team hasn't proven that this year. They have the players, they have many of the players that showed that last year, showed that they absolutely can compete in those situations, but they haven't come together and done that this year yet. So the Seattle game, we've already talked about it a lot. Just go over some factoids for you. Tobin Heath, Emily Menges, again, didn't play in this one. They made the trip. Uh, Mitch Purse did play for the first time since the international break. So I believe that's the first time in five games that she's suited up for the Thorns. First time since the North Carolina game. We can't mention that game ever again, but okay. Uh, the Thorns, to me, I was very disappointed after this game. It was a one nothing loss in Seattle, an 89th minute goal for Jody Taylor from the edge of the six-yard box created by Megan Rapino. Afterwards, I was very disappointed by this game. I wrote something that was basically like, you know, what do we... What is there to build from from this game? When I watched it again, I actually thought the Thorns created more chances and the better chances in a game that didn't have that many chances. I thought the Thorns created three good chances, four if you want to call them the offside goal that was waved off, I think, properly for offside. And I thought Seattle had two good chances. And if it wasn't for the context of this season, we would be saying, Seattle's a tough place to play. They played well. I think the Thorns are fine. But within the context of the season and coming off a Wednesday game where you're so disappointed— it just felt worse than it was, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's what I sort of allude to when we were talking about why the Sky Blue game was so disappointing. I mean, yes, in the context of the week and in the context of the season, um, they, it felt disappointing because they need the points. That Even though they drew Sky Blue, it hadn't didn't really change their place in the standings. Well, at some time, point, that's going to catch up with you, and we saw that after Seattle. They lose, they drop to six. They're out of playoff position now, and now they have to fight to get back in. It's close. They can do it, 
but it feels a lot more disappointing given the context. Um, my, my, the predictions, as we didn't oh, get that's to, right. were not uh wasn't exactly again optimistic <laughs> feeling optimistic with players coming back they didn't get the players back that i expected they would but yeah i predicted a 1-1 draw going to this That's really close though um it is close but <laughs> they well, don't i can't sit here and say that the thorns created the better chances and it was a good is actually a decent performance for them and then pretend like your prediction was that far off don't be hard on yourself here <laughs> well you uh predicted haran gets booked for a foul on fishlock who didn't even play yes yeah, so that was as of thursday we knew i was going to be wrong <laughs> on that i should have predicted somebody else gets booked for a foul on a different player because that actually maybe in hindsight was a little more predictable yeah but it didn't happen yeah so i think you get zero points I'll give myself three points just for the sort of a little bit of the spirit of the game. Yeah, I think you're still being tough on yourself there, but three points (laughs) is a lot of points in the Jamie Goldberg universe. Uh, Let's go to the universe of injury updates, which we always do. And let's speed through these a little bit because we have some interesting questions and we still want to talk about Utah and the clock is ticking down on us on this show. Uh, Emily Menges, Tobin Heath, same injuries. They are going to be evaluated throughout the week. They're in play for Utah. They might not play for Utah. Mitch Purse, we saw her come onto the field against Seattle, so you guys can infer what that means for this coming week and caitlin ford has actually joined the team in active practices this week mark parsons reiterated yesterday that the timeline that he gave two weeks ago that she was three to five weeks away still holds so she's progressing exactly as planned and the plan for friday is to welcome the utah royals for the first time ever in their existence to providence park which means kristen press no first time ever for for not Press. you're right they were here they they lost earlier they this lost year. Early in this one year. of the more convincing performances by the Thorns. Yes. i believe it was a two to nothing victory um, part of the problem at that time was that utah didn't have a lot of goal scorers not so much of an issue now kristen press one goal one assist over her first two games with utah yeah, so that I, I think that changes things. I, I mean, Utah has been has been the best defensive team in the NWSL in terms of goals con- conceded. I, I think they have conceded the fewest goals in the NWSL this season. Yep, so still. defense with you know Becky Sarabran leading the way ha- has not been an issue for them, but they have also um, been scored maybe the fewest goals or close to the fewest goals in the league. And now they add Christian Press, and that changes things we were talking about that big trade how it made a few teams better i think it obviously made utah a lot better and so this is a this is a a much more dangerous team coming in this time around um but it's a game that thorns still have to go into at home feeling that anything less than three points is going to be a disappointment i mean they're right there with utah in the standings uh dropping points against them could be uh problematic in this race And, and the Thorns are at home and they need to find a way. As we, I feel like we're saying every week, they need to find a way to, to show they can have a decisive performance at home against a, a team that they're competing with for a playoff spot. We saw them do it against Utah last time, but like, like we've said, this is a different Utah team. I think even Mark Parsons might disagree with what I'm about to say at this point, but still at this point, seeing how the season, how far there is to go in the season, I still think a draw in which the Thorns play well would be better than a win in which they got lucky. I still think they're at the point where the process is more important than the points. A loss at home would be terrible no matter how well they play because you would be giving Utah full points. But I think if you're not going to let Utah make up ground on you with a draw and you play in a way that you absolutely can build on that, you reintegrate your pieces, you come up with something in attack that actually works, you have more stability and more consistency at the back, I would rather have that than a crappy game where you went off a corner kick at this point. I disagree. 
I, I think we're we're getting down to crunch time and they need the points. I, I think they still have time left, but I think given how close like this race is, sixty four percent of the way through the season. <laughs> yeah. how, how many how many games is that in baseball team? It's like what ninety six games. They, Are you worrying about a baseball team with a ninety six? They game still mark? have time, but it is very yeah. close. Yeah, I agree. In the have, standings, I think and they only have two or three games to have this mentality of. of process over points. I also think that if they pick up three points, there's something to build off in terms of confidence. And I think if they come in here and get another draw at home, there's going to be, it's going to feel like a letdown, even if they played well. And in terms of the confidence and the mentality of the group, that might not be easy to build off of. So I think, yeah, I think it'll depend. Like if they play bad for 85 minutes and luck into a win, they're going to know it. And I think they're smart enough to know that there's a difference between like getting an early goal and grinding out a win and then stumbling onto something late. So it probably depends on what a lucky win is. But I think in general, they're, they're going to want to actually play well. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, when you look at last season, they, they played really well and they went on a winning streak towards the end of the year. And I, I do not know if this team is going to be able to do that this year. They haven't shown that they're building up towards that at this point yet. But that, that's what they need. They need to find a way to get there if they're going to kind of go on the same trajectory as they did last season. Speaking of getting to where we need to be, Lance, do the Thorns need to be more aggressive, take more chances? What's, what's your feeling on this? I don't think they need to be more aggressive or necessarily take more chances. I think they need to do a better job with the chances they're taking because I think they're creating enough opportunities right now and there are some point-blank chances. You look at that Sky Blue game that they've, they're missing. And I think... To some degree, that could be confidence at this point. It, they might be pressing a little bit. It, it's, it's not coming as easily as maybe they'd want. So that there might be some mentality aspects with that. But they have to find a way to just, if they're going to create, they're creating chances, but they need to find a way to put those away. The Thorns have never been a team that creates tons of chances. Earlier this year, over a couple of games, it looks like they might evolve into that team. But they've, they've been a team that has created better chances while limiting teams to fewer than they would otherwise expect. And that seems to be the formula that's going to have to succeed this year. Jeffrey asks, how much of the struggles in this thorn season is on the coach? I think, I think it's tough. I have seen actually a lot of blame on Mark Parsons out there. I have seen people asking. I've seen people blaming Gavin Wilkinson. Yes, like we talked I've heard, about last I've week. heard people getting Gavin Wilkinson. And I, I, I think that, yes, there, 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 is some blame that you have to put on, on Parsons. I mean, we've seen him change formation. We've seen things that haven't worked out. There's been games where he said, I, I think I should have made this tweak or this change earlier and noticed this. At the same time, he he has had to deal with the lineup changing every week, um, bringing a lot of the players back from last year, but not being able to play them, having to make changes, having to deal with, oh, Emily Sonnet's coming out. Who am I going to put into center back all of a sudden? So there has been a lot of challenges. Um, I, I think... You can't put all the blame on the players. You can't put all the blame on Mark Parsons. You can't put all the blame on the injuries. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of, it, there's a little blame that goes everywhere. I think you can put all the blame on Richard Farley because this team wasn't this like this before he joined the organization. No, I think this is, this year is a learning experience for Mark Parsons, the same way it's a learning experience for probably everybody but Christine Sinclair on the roster, really. <laughs> uh, maybe Kath Reynolds isn't learning a lot either. But yeah, I mean, Mark hasn't been perfect. He has told us when he has messed up. He has told us when, he, you know, the North Carolina game, he took that on his shoulders. The uh, trip to Houston, I think he took that on his shoulders a little bit, the, the first trip to Houston. And there was at least one other time this year where he said that he should have changed something differently or changed something sooner. Um, so I think that he shares as much of the blame as anybody else. Maybe a little bit more because he's the coach, but I also don't think he's oblivious to it either. I think he knows 
feels that um, in addition to players playing better and um, you know coaches doing different things that the actual manager at the top of the kind of food chain the org chart could do things better too uh, final question and boy this should have been in the top take segment uh, jmc is brave and asks and couches it in this context super unpopular almost poisonous question we've had tobin heath for five and a half years between playing overseas national team call-ups and injury we've been able to field her for about half of our games might it be time for morgan trade number two so one she's already shortchanging tobin a year so that's yeah. something. <laughs> uh, it, it seems like Tobin's only been here for five and a half years, but she was an original allocated player. So, um, no, actually, I think I'm adding a year to yeah, her. Yeah, you're adding I'm a year. I'm adding a year to this whole league because for some reason I thought that last year was the sixth year of the league. Yeah. So, um, so, one, you are right, JMC, and I am wrong in this moment. Um, <laughs> but is it time for Morgan Trade number two, Jamie? I don't think it's a crazy question to ask, but I also think the answer is no. Um, I think it's fair to, to be wondering, uh, it, it's, could the Thorns get better resources by trading Tobin Heath, given that she hasn't really been on the field consistently in the last year and a half at this point? Uh, at the same time, I, I think when they made the Morgan trade, things really set up well for that trade. They were bringing in a new coach. They were revamping the entire roster. They had all these roster spaces open because they were getting rid of, they were overhauling things. They were getting rid of a lot of players and they had this opportunity to trade Morgan and get a ton of value from that in raw and bring in players that they had room um, on the roster for and within the cap. Although I think some of them were us and women's national players didn't really impact the cap, but they had room within the roster to bring these players in and it was going to fit into the system that they were creating. They could build around these players that they were getting out of the trade players like Lindsay Horan and Megan Klingberg that came in through that Morgan trade. I don't think the Thorns are in the same position right now. I, I think their roster is more set. I, I think they would have some issues if they traded Heath, even if they got had opportunities to bring a lot of players in. They might not be able to really those. They might not be able to find the value where they can bring in players that they really need at this moment for her in the way the the Morgan trade played out. Um, in terms of just holding Heath on the roster, I the, I don't think it's problematic for the Thorns to hold Heath on the roster if they don't have a good trade option for her because we got to remember that she's not counting against the cap as a u.s women's national team allocated player so as long as she's on the team and not playing it's not impacting the thorns in terms of the cap it, it impacts in terms of a roster spot um so unless they so unless they see a trade that makes sense in terms of the value they can bring in um a lot of resources by trading tobin heath there's no reason for them to trade her and I don't see, given the lack of roster space and changes they want to make right now, there being a good opportunity presenting itself. I can boil it down to you like this. There are just certain players that you want, be it for their talent or their cultural contributions or both. And there are certain players that don't reach that standard. Tobin Heath could break her ankle tomorrow and everybody in this organization would still want her to be here. Every single one of her teammates, every single one of the front office. And it doesn't, it's not going to matter what anybody else offers. It's the same thing for Christine Sinclair. If anything happened to Christine Sinclair, you think there's a trade in the universe that the Thorns would take for Christine Sinclair? Now, you can sit here and go, oh, that's Christine Sinclair. But there is a big gap between Christine Sinclair and then the line of where a player becomes untouchable. And Tobin Heath is north of that line. Lindsay Horan is probably north of that line. There are players that are just not going to be traded for, for pure cultural reasons. And that 
that's not just about a player evaluation. That's also about what do you want to be as an organization? Do you want to be an organization where you say, we love this player. We want this player to be part of our future. We want this player to be in charge of grooming the next generation of Thorns and then trade her. There's, there's absolutely nothing you can get in return that makes that perception worthwhile. Now, we've had high-profile Thorns leave in the last three, two or three years, but I think we know, and again, we're having this verified, we think we know that there were circumstances that made the relationship between that player, that star player, that loved player, and the organization made it so sides had to part ways. Until that point happens with a Tobin Heath, and there's absolutely no indication whatsoever that from Tobin Heath's point of view that will happen, it would just be a disaster to trade her even in a deal where you get more people back. That's how soccer teams run. That's how organizations run. When you say that you love somebody, you got to show them that you love them. And that means not looking at this as if it's fantasy soccer. All right, let's go to our predictions for the coming games. And we'll start with the Friday game, Thorns versus Utah. That's going to be here at Providence Park. As Jamie said, it's going to be Kristen Press's first visit in Royals gear here in Portland. Your prediction. Yeah, um, I am not as optimistic as last week, but obviously I was wrong last week. So maybe... (laughs) The Thorns will continue to prove me wrong. Um, I'm predicting a 1-1 draw. Seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, right amount of skepticism and realism there. Uh, and since it is a Kristen Press-focused vig- visit, I'm going to have a Kristen Press-focused side bet. I'm going to say that she leaves Providence Park on Friday with no goals and no assists. Let's go to the Saturday game again here at Providence Park. Again, an 8 o'clock kickoff, both of these. Okay. Uh, San Jose is here for the second time this year. Third time this year, they're facing the Timbers. They've lost both times. Jamie, are they going to lose again? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, I don't think San Jose is a very good team. So You can never go back home. <laughs> I am, Yeah, it, that is true. I'm predicting the Timbers are going to win 2 nothing. Yeah, you're going to have to stay north of the bridge from now on. <laughs> um, and I'm going with a low-value bet here because I've, I've, I've taken so many zeros lately that only the generosity of Jamie's heart has been allowing me to rack up decimal points. I'm going with a Valeri goal on this one. I honestly did think about this game, how San Jose defends, where the spaces are likely to be. and Who really scored th- last time against them? Well, <laughs> I'm not saying it's off a penalty kick this time. Uh, not penalty, a free kick this time. Uh, I think Armin Chos will play from the start. He won't have a dodgy call go his way. Can't believe I just said the word dodgy, but... Speaking of dodgy, let's get the fantasy update. <laughs> yeah, so Chris Reifer finally gave me his uh, point total, but it, apparently he hasn't been playing since he retired. So that was his that was his caveat. <laughs> he retired so seriously. Yeah, he took it very seriously. So he's still in 51st place with uh, 1,269 points. But our top three, um, looks like we have some changes, actually. Uh, Victorious Secret is in third place. With a 1,717 Ooh. points. Creepy on top. <laughs> uh, Rip City Blues is in second place with 1,723 points. And Beer City FC is still on top with 1,826 points. Congrats, Beer City FC. Yes. And that's it. Uh, we're Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. That's Richard Farley. You can find us every week on Oregon Live, uh, Stumptown Footy, and Timbers.com. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care.